Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. So we've now spent the better part of a month talking about heaven. If you've joined me on this journey, it's been quite a biblical one thus far. We started off by simply asking that question, what does the Bible say about heaven? And then we talked about what will heaven feel like if we know people that we loved here on earth that are burning in hell while we're in heaven. And if you missed any of those two episodes, perhaps you're jumping in on the wrong one because this is going to be kind of a continuation of sorts of those episodes. And so I encourage you to go back, listen to those episodes, love them, hate them. That's up to you. Let me know what you think, though. If you feel like it, uh, shoot me an email or connect with me on social media. But today, I want to ask the question and kind of talk about a so what of sorts pertaining to the last couple episodes, but ask the question, what will heaven be like? Or maybe as a caveat in reference to the first episode about imagining heaven, what is actually safe and logical for our minds to start imagining about heaven while we're here on earth? And so jumping right into it, I think it's perhaps the elephant in the room to talk about the physicality of heaven, right? So as I mentioned before, the resurrection tells us that after death, there will still be a physical aspect of our nature. There is going to be a being, a physical being, component to who we are. Because ultimately, the body that you're in right now will be resurrected. And I'll circle back to that in a second. But that's very important to note about heaven, at least heaven as it's presented in the Bible, because There are a multitude of different religions, beliefs, philosophies that talk about an afterlife and what it could be like. I feel like the picture we get of an afterlife, probably more so from movies and media and perhaps even stories or even just our own imagination, really can be traced all the way back to Socrates. And that's kind of a funny statement to make if you know anything about Socrates' view of the afterlife and what happens after death. And he essentially said that the afterlife is one of two things. It's either a sleepless dream or a dreamless sleep. It's either an awakened sense of consciousness or nothing at all. And of course, if it's nothing at all, then as Epicurus would say, that's a good thing. Let's party it up because nothing's going to happen when we die anyway. But of course, that's not the premise that we're taking in this episode, nor has it been for the past couple episodes. So let's explore the other option. Now, for Socrates, the sleepless dream was an ethereal one. It was not a physical one. And this is important to know because for the Greeks, the body was actually a hindrance to mankind. The human body, in essence, gets in the way of the mind because for Socrates, the mind is really what makes someone a human. And the mind is the most important part of who you are. But your body is so needy. Your body needs sleep, it needs food, it needs to use the bathroom, it gets tired, it gets old, it gets weak, it hurts, things break. And so Hades, if it was any consolation at all, was the place where your mind was free of your body, where you were a soul and nothing more. And of course, to Socrates, both of these options were nothing to be feared. They were things to look forward to in either case. But I think that that's often a picture that we get of heaven or a picture that we give ourselves of heaven is that you'll be a soul, right? You'll, you'll be some ghostly being, but rather than being terrifying, you'll be golden and radiant, 
Or perhaps your feet will never touch the ground and you'll have angel wings and a tunic or a cloak of some sort and a halo. And you'll float and fly around. Your soul will be happy and free. But of course, as we've talked about, that's not biblical. And what I find fascinating is when we think about what it actually means to be a soul, to have consciousness, I think one of the best modern works on this is Thomas Nagel's work, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? In which Nagel makes the argument that consciousness is a state of being in connection with feeling. So Nagel is arguing against reductionist physics-based philosophy. And his argument is, of course, against reductionism, that you can't boil down every human experience to the reaction between molecules and atoms within us. Thomas Nagel, again, who's an atheist, his argument is that feelings are just as real as science. His argument is that subjective experience can often be just as much of a truth as objective, scientific, reductionist reality. And even more so to expand on that, we can't actually know objective, scientific, reductionist reality any other way except through our subjective, experienced feelings. And so, of course, Nagel leans more on the side that once you die, that's it. You can't actually experience an afterlife because your body ceases to feel, your body ceases to function. And I actually agree with him. And I would agree with him 100% if I was an atheist. But I agree with him in the sense that what it means to be human was never intended to be the mind separated from the body, was never intended to be a soul absent from a body. To put it another way, you are a soul and a body, not just a soul trapped in a body, and not just, as the reductionist would say, a body having chemical reactions, which convinces the body that it indeed has a soul and therefore is profitable for evolutionary survival or what have you. But I actually agree with Nagel. You are a body and a soul. That your soul, your mind, interacts through the body and the two are never separated. That we never have as humans a complete separation between objective fact and subjective reality fact. And so it fascinates me when the Bible, Paul says that when we die, we sleep. But in the resurrection, those that are asleep in the Lord will be raised first. And so to pose a pseudo-question and give you a completely honest answer of I don't know, it does raise the question of if I died in 2021, which is the year in which I'm recording this podcast, and Jesus doesn't return for, you know, say another 40 years, say another 400 years, what am I going to experience in that time, in that delay time between where my body is sleeping, as it were, dead, and when my body is resurrected? I don't actually know. Given the parable that we have from Jesus of the rich man and Lazarus, I would say it's safe to assume that something happens. I would say it's safe to assume that we experience the joy of the Lord the moment we die. But it's a curious thing, and it makes me wonder how long that moment actually is, right? Because the Bible also says that a day in heaven is like a thousand years on earth. So if I were to die in 2021, however long it takes between that time and the resurrection might only feel like the blink of an eye might only feel like the same amount of time that it takes me now currently to inhale and exhale one breath. I don't know. It's speculation. But what I do know is that the resurrection affirms what I believe Thomas Nagel so rightly observes is that the mind, the soul needs the body in order to obtain and process subjective and objective reality. 
In other words, we need our bodies to experience things. We need our bodies to know how things are and how things feel, right? And that's Thomas Nagel's whole point in his book, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? The whole point is, well, we don't actually know what it's like to be a bat because we can't see with our ears, right? Playing off the premise that, uh, well, playing off the fact that bats use sonar to fly around at night to see things. And so the main question is, well, what's that like? Uh, I don't know, and I am willing to bet money, and I'm not a betting person, but I'm willing to bet money that you don't know what it's like to see with your ears either. And that's because we experience things through our bodies. And so biblically, the Bible promises a resurrection. So that builds a case for trusting that heaven is physical, but then also logically, the idea of separating the soul and the body, I feel like given enough thought, sounds ridiculous. To think that there is an afterlife that is not the heaven that's described in the Bible, I'm going to be honest, sounds a little silly. That's why Socrates was on the fence about it, right? He basically said, listen, if there's a Hades, it's probably going to be cool because I won't have a body. But he doesn't know what it's like to not have a body. That's like saying, what is it like to be a bat? Because anything he can imagine, moving around, seeing things, hearing things, tasting things, smelling things, what it will look like, we only imagine through the lens of actually having a body. Another Nagel example is, imagine being 30 feet tall. You can actually probably do that, right? Because I didn't say imagine not being a human. I just said imagine being a 30-foot tall human. So as you can imagine, other humans would look relatively short. You would probably see the tops of buildings and trees. Mountains may look smaller. But if I were to say imagine being a rock, right, or imagine being a bat... You can't do it because you've never physically been a rock. Even if you close your eyes and sit perfectly still, you're still experiencing life through a human body. And this is the doubt that Socrates had, or at least I'm assuming it's the doubt that he had, that we're either minds or souls floating around in Hades, or there's nothing. So therefore, I submit that a resurrection actually makes more logical sense than an ethereal afterlife floating with some wings on some cloud somewhere. And since I brought that up, what will we actually do in heaven? So, okay, it's physical, right? We have physical descriptors of heaven. We have physical descriptors of the new heavens and the new earth. We know a couple really telling things, actually, about heaven. And so for the next uh, whatever time we have left in this episode, let's do that. Let's talk about what the Bible says. Let's break some logic out of it. And let's imagine and have a little bit of fun with it. So Revelation 21 describes a new heaven and a new earth and says, for the former things have passed away. Now, the word for, used for new in Revelation 21.1 is kainos, which also can sometimes be translated fresh. And the word used for were passed away is parekomai, which can sometimes mean perish, but also can sometimes mean carried past or moved forward. And so going back to something we talked about a couple episodes ago, the idea that, oh, it's all going to burn in the end. Well, the Bible doesn't actually say that. It's possible it could burn in the end. I'm not going to give you an exact answer. But I feel like it's highly unlikely because I remember at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, God looked around at creation and called it good. And it's very against the nature and character of God to destroy something he called good. And so, of course, while the text is a little vague here, because again, John is seeing things that he's never seen before. He's seeing new things. He's seeing fresh things. It's very possible the word new we get here means something more like restored or freshed. I think about the feeling I get every time I step out of the shower. I feel fresh. There's a cleansing. There's a renewal that happens, right? So track with me here then. Either way, heaven comes down to earth. 
The Bible talks about the new Jerusalem, just a few verses later, descending down to earth. And we learn some really telling things here. We learn that the streets are made of gold and that the 12 gates around it are made of pearl and that there are stones in each gate and those represent the tribes of Israel. And then there's a river of life and a tree of life and the tree produces 12 different kinds of fruits and that those are for the healing of the nations. So keywords there, right? New Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city. Now that's important in heaven. Right, a couple episodes ago, we talked about the verse where Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, and that perhaps a better translation of that is rooms, and talked about Jewish tradition, that often families would just build on rooms to their home to accommodate when their children would get married, and they would have children, and they'd get married, and there would be more rooms added to the home. And this, of course, talking about the familial and relationship language used in the Bible so richly to describe heaven. But I don't necessarily know that we should picture a countryside mansion or manor. And that's the only constructed thing for miles and the rest is rolling green hills and, you know, brooks and rivers and uh, no other human development. Though that actually does sound really nice and I do have a feeling the earth will be full of areas like that. Jerusalem's a city. It's actually a really big city. It's a city bigger than the state of Montana, but cubed all around. <laughs> Length, width, and height are all massive in this city. And what happens in cities? Well, life happens in cities. There's hustle, there's bustle, there's noise, there's stuff going on, there's activities, there's music, there's culture, there's art. And this, let me be clear, is not in the Bible that there's going to be culture and art and music and life and probably some darn good coffee. But I think it's safe to imagine that. If the Bible tells us the focal point of heaven is this massive metropolitan city, I think it's safe to assume, and if we make this assumption with the fact that God made us in his image and he is a creator, he is a designer, he is an artist, he is a musician, in his presence, the Bible says, are pleasures evermore, in him is the fullness of joy, then I think it is very, 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 very safe to imagine that heaven will be a cultural, artistic, creative hub like we have never known on this earth. Every century has its city that stands out a little more artistically than others, whether it's Athens or Corinth or Portland or New York City or Hollywood. We're known for artistic creativity. We're known for crafts. We as humans have a fascination with beauty and creating that beauty and molding that beauty and shaping that beauty. Please, if you have a logical argument as to why that would stop in heaven, present it to me because I can't think of one. So I think it's very safe to imagine then that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be mind-blowingly creative and artistic in heaven. Also, let's talk about that because it said the fruit in the tree of life is for the healing of the nations, which leads me to believe that Jerusalem won't be the only city in heaven, that Israel won't be the only nation in heaven, because we're also told that all tribes, tons, and nations, as I just mentioned, and as Revelation mentions, will worship God. And that makes sense too, right? In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. I think that means that God's initial intention was to have the earth full of people, full of creativity, full of culture, full of life, full of cities, full of explosions of beauty for all of time and for the rest of time. I don't know. 
It's not in the Bible. I feel like I'm putting two and two together and making logical conclusions, though. If you have a counter-argument, I'd love to hear it. But doesn't that sound awesome? One more quick note about this passage. The streets are made of gold, the gates are made of pearl, right? Ooh, sounds so pretty. Well, hold up. I'm also an engineer. I loved material sciences. I love researching materials and applications of those materials. So that strikes me a little bit odd if the streets are made of gold and the gates are made of pearl, because currently we make our streets of asphalt or concrete or some kind of mixture, and we make our gates of steel and not any particularly fancy steel, but nonetheless steel. These two materials have in common that they are much cheaper and easier to obtain than both gold and pearl. And so that tells me something else about heaven. Or at least it makes me assume something else about heaven. It makes me assume that perhaps the cheapest, most common materials in heaven are gold and pearl. I don't know. It's not in the Bible, but I'm speculating here. If that's the case, what other materials are out there? Again, engineering me over here is thinking about some of the really awesome materials that we do have in this world that we have been able to do crazy creations with. Some of the pure metals and rare elements that we have on this earth that we've been able to conduct experiments and invent things and build absolutely insane machines that fly us around and fly us into outer space and technology and computers that are microscopic. So hear me out on this one, then. It's maybe a little far-fetched. Definitely not in the Bible. Again, let me know if you see flaws in this logic. But I know I won't be the only engineer in heaven. I know there will be scientists and inventors and creators and thinkers and dreamers and doers who will be resurrected in both mind and body. And when you look at human history, people that have been given 70 years to live on this earth after 20 or 30 years of schooling, with the remaining and fleeting time they've had, have invented some pretty cool stuff. So in my mind, I feel like it's a safe and logical thing to imagine that engineers and scientists and thinkers and dreamers, people who are technologically savvy, given all of eternity to dream and think and create and invent, and given materials with properties that are probably mind-blowingly awesome, we might make some pretty cool things in heaven. I'm just saying, I'm a fan of motorcycles. I hope we make the coolest motorcycles ever in heaven. Am I crazy? Maybe a little. I don't know. If you see a flaw in the logic, point it out. I'd love to have a conversation about it. But another thing I want to get to is, and I mentioned it briefly when I mentioned Genesis, that God said to multiply and subdue the earth. Subdue has this idea of ruling, right? Of conquering. And then the Bible also talks about in heaven, Paul says, we'll sit in judgment over angels, right? Jesus says, we'll rule and reign with him in heaven. So there's an aspect of heaven in which we will have duty and authority. So onto the duty part first. One of the things that makes Christianity unique is that work was given to man before sin, before fall. In most other religions and cultures that have creation stories, the idea that man would work or till the ground, as Genesis says, is typically presented as a curse. You see, man was punished for being so bad, and that's why man must till the ground and work. But God, in the Bible, gave us work before the curse, when everything was good. And so work was good. And so if heaven, if new heaven's new earth is a regaining of the perfect intention of creation in Eden, then I do think it's very logical to imagine 
that you'll have a job in heaven, that I will have a job in heaven. And we know from here on earth that we're actually kind of programmed that way, that in a sense, we're meant to find fulfillment, we're meant to find happiness, we're meant to find a purpose and a place in our work. That's a very, very Christian idea. That work isn't just a means to an end, that there is something you're meant to do, right? There's something that all of us have as an answer to that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? That work was never intended to be a curse, though sometimes it does. And something like 50% of people are unhappy with their jobs anyway. But maybe it wasn't meant to be that way. Well, actually not maybe. Biblically, it wasn't meant to be that way. And so I think it's a very, very logical assertion to make, especially given what the Bible says about ruling and reigning and sitting in judgment over angels that we'll have jobs in heaven. And part of that work, those jobs, will be to subdue creation. That sounds a little funny in our day and age. I feel like when I say subdue creation or bring creation into submission, one of the first images to pop in my head is the bad guy in Tarzan, right? Who just wanted to put the monkeys in cages, but Tarzan wanted to live in peace with the monkeys. But in a way, both men were subduing creation. The greedy man who wanted to put the monkeys in cages was maliciously subduing creation. He was subduing creation for purposes of evil. But Tarzan was subduing creation when he was attempting to get the monkeys to live with people in harmony. And here we find another descriptor of heaven, right? That the lion will lie down with the lamb. That vipers will be friendly, right? That children and snakes are going to play together. That there will be harmony in creation. And you know, really another way to subdue creation is exactly what I just talked about. Both concepts, artistically and scientifically, we subdue creation. In creating music, you subdue the sound waves produced out of the musical notes. In creating art, you subdue Whatever medium you are using, you whip it into shape, into formation, and you make something beautiful. The same thing goes for science and engineering, right? We subdue the materials, we make them do what we want them to do, and something beautiful comes out of it. And that was God's original intention for mankind and creation. Not for mankind to live like Tarzan forever, but for mankind to do the artistic and scientific and engineering endeavors. But do them perfectly. Do them well. Do them without destroying the earth. I mean, that's ultimately what we want anyway, right? We want to keep advancing technology as much as we can. We want to keep exploring artistic creation endeavors as much as we can. But we also don't want to change our climate to where we make this earth unlivable, right? Imagine if there were no curse and we could do that. Well, I think now you're starting to imagine heaven. I don't know. Just my thoughts. Uh, Again, let me know if you see any flaws in the logic. This is definitely more speculation than observation as far as biblical and philosophical truths go. But lastly, heaven will be a place of worship. Now, don't turn this podcast off just yet, because we've all had that experience in church where the worship got a little weird. If you grew up in youth group, you probably had more of those experiences there than in any other church setting. But hey, I don't know. I don't know what kind of church you went to. I've definitely been to some wacky worship experiences or services or whatever you want to call it. So don't you dare for a minute project wacky church worship service onto heaven. Because the way the Bible describes the worship in heaven, all of creation will be in on it. Not just the wacky worship leader with the ironic mustache and tight pants. So what? We're just going to be standing around the throne all day singing hymns? I don't know. But I really, really, really doubt it. 
Because I feel like God's more colorful than that. I mean, look how the Bible describes heaven. Look how the Bible describes the colors of heaven. Look how the Bible describes the beauty of the features of the new heavens and new earth, of the sea made of glass, of all the different kinds of stones, of how beautifully everything's arrayed. I mean, we're talking light, sound, beauty, expression, like we can't even fully imagine here on this earth. So I may be going a little too far with this, but I feel like worship in heaven is going to make the craziest raves here on earth look like a toddler's birthday party, or maybe look like the weird youth camp worship experience that you're picturing in your head. I don't know. I may be, I may be pushing the envelope on this one, but I feel like if you compare to the worship of heaven to the most lit, hyped up rave here on earth, man, that rave would look so lame right? Or the like most, I don't know, dope EDM festival. You can tell I go to these things a lot. Oh, actually, I've never been to one. But you understand my point, right? Like worship in heaven, I think is going to be a lot more colorful and full of life and will perhaps be the most beautiful, the most creative, the most worthwhile endeavor we engage in in heaven. But anyway, all of this to kind of wrap up the point that I've been making over the past couple episodes, which is that we need to approach heaven logically. We need to approach heaven with cleared minds. We need to try to get past what we may have heard a parent or a grandparent or a well-meaning but misguided preacher describe heaven as. Look at it logically. Look at it biblically. And then imagine it. And have fun imagining it. But let me know what you think. What have you thought of heaven? What have you imagined it to be like? Did I miss some logic? I'd love to know that. What other logical conclusions have you come to from scripture about heaven? I didn't even touch on what Ezekiel says about it. I didn't even touch about Isaiah or what David has to say. So let me know. Let's continue on this conversation. But until then, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.